Hi, this is Steve Nerlick from Cheap Astronomy. Why, 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 why Cheap Astronomy? Yeah, why? And this is Dear Cheap Astronomy, Episode 64, Back to Basics. Hang on to your hats, folks. Here's an episode on, wait for it, water. And if that isn't enough, the also never disappointing hydrogen. Hey, hey. So, let's not waste any time. Dear Cheap Astronomy, So the water came from asteroids now? Well, yes. Or at least that's the latest thinking. As we've previously discussed on Cheap Astronomy, most astronomers think that all the water on Earth must have come from falling comets, whereas most geologists, those people who are always looking down rather than up, think the water was already contained within the primordial matter that accreted together to form the Earth. But amongst astronomers, there has been a shift away from comets being the water source, because in the few instances where it's been possible to sample cometary water, we found it has quite different hydrogen to deuterium ratios compared to the water that's on Earth. So now astronomers are thinking the water on Earth must have come from asteroids, because it has to come from somewhere, unless of course you go with the water was always here theory. The reason why most astronomers don't like the water was always here theory is also about hydrogen to deuterium ratios. Theoretical modelling of the early solar system imagines planets forming in the solar nebula surrounding the protostar that became the Sun. As that protostar began to radiate, its solar wind would have pushed out more light hydrogen than heavy deuterium. Remembering that deuterium is a hydrogen ion, that is, a single proton, plus one neutron. So the close-in regions where the rocky planets formed would have a relatively low hydrogen to deuterium ratio, while the outer regions would have a relatively high hydrogen to deuterium ratio, since most of the hydrogen from the inner solar system was blown out to the outer solar system. However, what we actually find in Earth's water is a relatively high hydrogen to deuterium ratio, leading to the thinking that Earth's hydrogen, and hence its water, must have been returned from those outer solar system regions, first we thought by comets, and now we think by asteroids, and that perhaps happened during the late heavy bombardment, when a shift in Jupiter's orbit sent a rain of asteroids our way. But now, there's some new thinking. Here at Cheap Astronomy, we do try and remind people that the latest announcements about anything are generally just some latest thinking, and you shouldn't assume we've really nailed something just because someone put out a press release. But anyway, in April 2019, someone put out a press release about new findings which support the water was always here theory. Firstly, we need to consider that there's a problem with measuring the deuterium ratio in Earth's water today when we are really trying to estimate what it was like 4 billion years ago. That's a long time, over which you would have seen some evaporative and hydrolytic loss to space, as well as life on Earth processing both water and hydrogen 
through photosynthesis and other metabolic pathways. So measuring the deuterium ratio in Earth's water today doesn't necessarily reflect what the deuterium ratio was 4 billion years ago. So, researchers try to isolate a sample of genuinely primordial water, or at least primordial hydrogen, from deep mantle minerals brought up to the surface by volcanoes around Iceland, where it's said the mountains stand with pride. The researchers claims that their particular Icelandic rock samples were primordial do depend on a number of disputed assumptions. But if they're right, the hydrogen to deuterium ratio found in those primordial minerals is about what you'd expect in the early solar nebula in which the Earth formed. So this supports the water was always here theory. Supporters of the water was always here theory suggest that by the time proto-Earth had become massive enough to start heating up and going molten, it was also massive enough to start generating a substantial gravitational field. So while any primordial water would evaporate out of that molten rock, it would just rise, cool, and precipitate back down again because of gravity. Even if that water was superheated to hydrolyze into hydrogen and oxygen, our magnetic field would protect most of those ions from being blown away by the solar wind. This is where we think Mars and Venus might have also started out with equivalent water contents to the early Earth, but their respective lack of a magnetic field meant their primordial water and any hydrogen and oxygen ions were mostly lost to space. So is this the end of the story about where all the water came from? No. This is the middle bit. Yep, you can always rely on cheap astronomy for everything you need to know about water. And we're not finished there. This huge double-barreled episode now brings you all the cutting-edge science that's available on that most singular of elemental building blocks. Yep, it's hydrogen. And of course, it's hydrogen in space. Dear Cheap Astronomy, what are the voyagers learning about interstellar space? In August 2012, Voyager 1 crossed over into interstellar space, although no one was able to confirm that until an announcement in 2014. There was an announcement in December 2018 that Voyager 2 had also crossed over, apparently on the 5th of November 2018. It didn't take so long to realise that Voyager 2 had crossed over, partly because people had a better understanding of what to look for, but mostly because Voyager 2's plasma science experiment was still working. Voyager 1's plasma science experiment had broken down way back in 1980. With working plasma experiment instrumentation, Voyager 2 was able to detect sudden changes in the speed of solar wind particles, coupled with an increase in the speed of galactic cosmic rays within its immediate environment. We worked out that Voyager 1 entered interstellar space in 2012 using its plasma wave experiment, which monitors for changes in a plasma's electrical field using what basically amounts to a radio antenna. While Voyager 1 was still in the heliosphere, 
It was able to detect plasma waves arising from coronal mass ejections, which put an extra kick into the solar wind. So, with a combination of knowing the velocity of Voyager 1, and the expected decline in the standard solar wind background, and the expected pulse from a coronal mass ejection, we were able to work out when Voyager 1 crossed over into interstellar space by calculating expected and actual plasma density changes over time. But again, with Voyager 2 and its functioning plasma science experiment, we knew straight away when it crossed over just by monitoring actual plasma particles. But anyway, what do we now know about interstellar space thanks to the Voyagers? Firstly, remember that space is mostly vacuum, so when we talk about plasma densities, we are talking in very diffuse terms. So, as was expected, Voyager 1 found the plasma density of interstellar space was higher than it was in the heliopause, where the heliopause is just beyond the edge of the heliosphere, representing where the solar wind's outward push has finally petered out. Of course, the plasma density of the inner solar system is much higher than it is in interstellar space, since you are that much closer to a star. So consider that around every star, you can expect to find an expanding sphere of plasma produced by each star's stellar wind. As that sphere expands outwards, its plasma density declines. So there is a point where the density of the plasma becomes so thin it can no longer push out against the interstellar medium. This is mostly an electrical field effect, that is, as the density of an outward flow of charged particles declines, the field strength they generate also declines, until eventually that field strength is overwhelmed by the field strength of the charged particles in the interstellar medium. But those stellar wind particles don't then fall back towards the star. Like probably most stars, the Sun has a proper motion of its own, so it is essentially pushing through the interstellar medium as it orbits the Milky Way galaxy. So most outer solar wind particles in the Sun's heliosheath are mostly pushed backwards as the Sun progresses forwards. In other words, while stellar wind particles can escape from their star, it's mostly in the form of a trail of particles that are left behind in the star's wake. Such small star trails make a very minor contribution to the plasma content of the interstellar medium. Most of the plasma of the interstellar medium comes from really big stars that exploded at the end of their relatively short lives and so seeded the interstellar medium. And while this is partly about seeding the interstellar medium with all the complex elements of the periodic table that are formed by stellar fusion and by the supernova explosions themselves, by far the most common output of a supernova explosion is simple ionised hydrogen, that is, charged protons and electrons. It's always the case that the known universe is mostly hydrogen, or more accurately, it's mostly single protons and electrons. Although, of course, we actually think most of the universe's matter content is dark matter, we just don't know what the heck that is yet. This is the end bit. So, there you go. Water and hydrogen 
and even some deuterium in the one episode. We'll be sweeping up after this one for weeks to come. And come on, we did deal with some big questions about how our planet came to be and what the outside universe is really all about, even if it is mostly about some scant scatterings of hydrogen ions. But that's it for another episode of Dear Cheap Astronomy. If you've got a space science question, or you just want an in-depth analysis of the mundane and familiar, why not write to cheapastro at gmail.com and let us state the bleeding obvious for you. Thanks for listening. Steve Nerlich, Cheap Astronomy.